0: at Vigoro Potting Soil, just 897 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done?
1: Why do you still feel the waves after you get off a boat? And when you get off the treadmill at the gym, why does everything seem to be flowing past you faster? What does heartbreak have in common with drug withdrawal? And why, after you stare at a waterfall for a while, do the rocks on the side seem to be crawling upward? Why did people in the 1980s think their book pages had some color red in them, but no one thought that before or after the 80s? And what does any of this have to do with the great philosopher Aristotle watching a horse stuck in the river? Welcome to Inner Cosmos with me, David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist and author at Stanford. And in these episodes, we sail deeply into our three-pound universe to understand why and how our lives look the way they do. Today's episode is about the way the brain readjusts its circuitry on really fast timescales and why your brain is constantly doing this. In the 1980s, tens of thousands of people began to notice something really weird. When they looked at a floppy disk envelope with the black and white IBM logo on the front, the letters IBM seemed to have a red tint, And the same thing happened when people looked at pages in a book. The text seemed like it was shaded red. Now, if that's not weird enough, check this out. This only happened in the 1980s. People didn't perceive a red tint before or after this decade. So what was changing about brains during that window? I'll tell you the answer. But to understand this, we're first going to step back even further in history. 2,400 years further to Aristotle. Now, Aristotle, as you know, was a philosopher and a polymath whose intellectual interests were boundless. He wrote about essentially every subject you could imagine. But we're coming to Aristotle not because of something he wrote, but instead because he was insightful enough to pause and notice when something didn't make sense. What happened is that someone was trying to cross a fast-flowing river on his horse, and the horse got stuck halfway in the river. So Aristotle, along with some other people, ended up watching this rescue operation, the way you might have a bunch of people looking at a car crash nowadays. So you have all these Greeks all standing there in their togas, talking and chatting and watching the horse in the fast-flowing river. Now, most of the people were presumably just talking about stuff that made no difference to history, but Aristotle stood at the side of the river, intently watching this horse. Now, here was the key about Aristotle, a general characteristic that made him so famous to history. He was a good observer. He paid attention. He noticed when things were unusual. And when he found something, he would sink his teeth into the problem and wouldn't let go. And what he noticed here was something that possibly the others did too, but they ignored it and they didn't think any further on it. What he noticed is that once the horse got unstuck and the man made it to the shore and Aristotle looked away, he noticed that everything on the land, the rocks, the huts, the trees, everything seemed to be Drifting and they all seem to be moving in the opposite direction of the river. Now, you may have seen something like this too. The easiest way to experience Aristotle's confusion and delight is to stare at a waterfall. And after you keep your eyes locked on it for a while, look over to the rocks on the side of the waterfall, and the rocks appear to be moving upward. Now, this illusion that he first made note of 2,400 years ago has come to be known as the motion after effect. Why does it happen? The activity of particular neurons in your visual cortex represents downward motion. And the activity of other neurons represents upward motion and they're always locked in battle. And most of the time, the competition is evenly pitched and they evenly inhibit each other. And as a result, the world appears to you to be moving neither up nor down. So given this... A popular explanation for the motion after effect is fatigue. By staring at the downward motion of the waterfall, you burn up a good deal of energy in your downward coding neurons, and now their vigor is temporarily depleted. So the battle tips in favor of the upward encoding neurons. And as a result of this, Unbalanced activity, you perceive that the rocks are climbing upward. You have this net movement upward. Now, this fatigue hypothesis is very appealing in its simplicity, but it's wrong. Why? Because it can't explain some critical facts about the illusion. So imagine you watch the downward waterfall for a while and then you close your eyes tightly, say for three hours, you close your eyes. When you reopen your eyes, you'll see the rocks crawling upward. And what that tells us is it's not about a temporary energy depletion in neurons. There's something deeper going on here. And here's what that deeper thing is. The illusion comes about not because of passive fatigue, but instead because of an active recalibration in your brain. Your visual system is ex- Exposed to continuous downward motion and after a while it comes to assume this is the new normal. At first, downward motion is dramatic information to your brain. But after a while of staring, you receive no new information from downwardness here. So as far as your brain is concerned, this is the new reality, a world that flows more down than up. So your visual system Carefully rebalances its expectations to mirror the world to expect more downward than upward activity. Now, when you look away from the waterfall and toward the cliffside, this recalibrated set point becomes obvious because now rocks and trees are flowing upward toward the sky. Your set point has shifted. In other words, what counts as standing still has shifted. Why? Well, your brain always wants to set up a ground truth so that it can be better at detecting change. In this case, when your visual field is filled with the sight of the waterfall, your brain is working to subtract off all that downward motion. All that downward motion is no longer informative in the way that it was, and so the circuitry, it adjusts itself so that it can be maximally sensitive to new information. Now, if you watch for it the way Aristotle would, you'll see that this kind of recalibration happens to you all the time. Think about when you're on a small boat on the ocean. You are rocking with the waves for a while. And then when you get off the boat, the land seems to be rocking for a while. It feels as though you're still on the water. Now, you may have thought about it this way. Hey, my body thinks it's still on the water. But what you're actually feeling is a negative image of the water's motion. And you may have noticed this sort of illusion if you're a runner. So here's what normally happens. Your body sends motor commands to the legs. It says, okay, move fast. And correlated with your running is a visual sensation where the visual world is flowing by your eyes as a result. But, when you run on a treadmill at the gym, your brain is sending the same signals to your legs, run fast, but now your visual system doesn't get the world flowing past. Instead, you're looking at the gym wall in front of you the whole time. So now, when you step off, you experience the treadmill illusion. With each step you take toward the locker room, the world seems to stream by at a faster pace. It looks as though you're moving forward more quickly than you really are. Why does it happen? Because your brain has an expectation about how the act of moving your legs should translate to the flow of the visual scene past your eyes. And now, after the treadmill, it's had to adjust that relationship. So now there's an after effect. This is just like with Aristotle's horse or the waterfall or the feeling that you're still rocking after you get off the boat. Your brain is readjusting its expectations about the world. In the case of the treadmill, it's how the act of moving your legs should translate to the flow of the visual scene past your eyes. And when you go back to the normal world, there's an after effect. As another example, you've surely noticed color after effects. If you stare at a red dot for a little while, and then you look somewhere else and blink, you'll see the dot, but now it looks green. Or if you stare at something bright yellow for a little while, and then you look away, you'll see the opposite color, blue. And these types of color after effects can be surprisingly sophisticated. So consider something called the McCulloch after effect, named after the researcher Celeste McCulloch, who discovered this in the 1960s. So to really get this, I want you to imagine a bunch of black and white lines, like black, white, black, white, black, white. Now imagine a group of these that are horizontal and a separate group of these that are vertical. Now, this can't just be imagined as an illusion, but has to be looked at to work. So please find a picture of these lines on eagleman.com slash podcast to go over there and take a look at this. Okay, so look farther down the page and you'll see lines that look the same as these black and white lines, but now they're colored. The horizontal lines are green and the vertical lines are red. And what I want you to do is stare at these colored lines for a bit, like a few minutes. The green lines go side to side, the red lines go up and down. Now go back to the original black and white lines and you'll see something amazing. You'll see that the spaces between the black and white horizontal lines now look reddish and the spaces between the black and white vertical lines look greenish. This is the McCulloch effect. You got to try this for yourself. It's really worthwhile. Now, why does it happen? It's because when you stared at the colored lines, your brain said hey, wait, for some strange reason, everything horizontal is appearing green to me and everything vertical is looking red to me, but those features shouldn't really be correlated. And so it adjusts itself to cancel out this strange relationship going on. And when you look at the black and white lines again, you're seeing the after effect. The horizontal lines were being internally shifted in your brain towards the opposite color, red, and the vertical lines toward green. And again, I just want to be clear, this has nothing to do with fatigue, because in 1975, two researchers showed that if you stare at these red and green lines for 15 minutes, the after effect can last three and a half months, So your brain is always doing an active recalibration of the world out there. And this active recalibration is why in the 1980s, many people began to see the text in the books appearing to have a red tint. Because at that time, the population had just begun to use computer monitors to do word processing. And as some of you remember unlike modern monitors, these early monitors only displayed one color, green. And so you typed a bunch of lines of text on the screen, and it looked like horizontal lines of green on a black background. So people would stare at these horizontal green rows for hours at a time, all day while they were doing their computer work. And so when they picked up a book The horizontal lines of black and white text were shaded with the complementary color red. It was the McCulloch effect. Their brains were adjusting to a world of horizontal green lines, and their reality changed accordingly. Now, I mentioned that the computer users in the 1980s also experienced this illusion when they looked at the IBM logo emblazoned on the front of the floppy disk sleeve— If any of you remember the old IBM logo, it's the three letters spelled out of horizontal lines as though you're looking at IBM put through a egg slicer. And so the logo, just like the horizontal lines in the book, looked tinged with red. And designers at IBM were flummoxed about this because they had definitely not printed their black and white design with any red in it, and yet everyone was insisting that they had. So all these after effects teach us something wild. Even though you just open your eyes and look around the world and assume you're just seeing reality out there, in fact, your brain is doing massive work behind the scenes. It's always recalibrating itself on the fly to try to improve what it's seeing, to try to get rid of information that doesn't matter so it can surface the information that does matter. And this active recalibration of the world that's happening behind the scenes, this applies to everything. How much motion is in the world, how stable the ground is, whether vision flows past us when we move our legs, whether lines are infused with color. None of this stuff is decided in our genetics. It's all calibrated by our experience. Now, I want to take this concept of adaptation one level deeper. I want to introduce the concept that your brain is making things invisible if they are expected. So take this as an example. Let's say you take a a yellow ping pong ball and you cut it exactly in half and you lay one hemisphere over each eye. And what you'll see is the whole world is an even blanket of yellow color. But within a few moments... You don't see any color at all it's as though you're blind your visual system just assumes that the world has become yellower and so it adapts so that you'll be sensitive to other changes so you should try this you can find any sort of totally featureless scene that's entirely one color and fill your eyes with it like walk up to a wall that's entirely painted red walk up real close your eyes are filled with red and you'll see the color will quickly drain away to neutral. Your brain says, hey, there's no more information here. I expect this color, so I'm going to adjust things so that becomes invisible. And I'll tell you something else. The scene doesn't even have to be featureless for things to fade away. So in 1804, a Swiss physician named Ignace Troxler noticed something really stunning, which is if you stare at a central point in the middle of a bunch of blobs of color, all the busyness in the periphery, all those blobs will eventually disappear. I have an example of this on eagleman.com slash podcast. Check it out. It's really amazing. What you do is you keep your gaze fixed right in the middle of the picture and you'll see there's all these smooth blobs of color. And within about 10 seconds, if you're keeping your eyes still... All these surrounding blobs just start to disappear into the background. And soon, you're looking at what appears to be a blank page. Now, this is wild. And if you move your eyes around just a bit, all these blobs come back into your consciousness. This illusion is called the Troxler effect. And what it demonstrates is that if there's a blob of something in your peripheral vision that is not changing at all it will evaporate from your perception. Now, what is going on here? The answer is that your visual system is always seeking motion and change. Something that's fixed and unchanging doesn't really matter, and it quickly becomes invisible. Good information is expected to update, and things that don't change get ignored by the system. So what prevents your kitchen or your workplace from becoming like a Troxler illusion with all the motionless features disappearing. Well, first, most of the world is made up of hard edges, not blobs, and those are easier for your visual system to hang on to. But there's a deeper reason. Although you're not generally aware of it, your eyes are constantly jumping and jiggling around. So just observe a friend's. Eyeballs. You'll notice that her eyeballs are making about three rapid jumps every second of her waking life. These are called saccades. Bang, 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 bang. And if you watch even more closely, you'll find that in between the big jumps, her eyes are constantly performing these little micro jitters. They're called micro saccades. Bang, brr, bang, brr, bang, bang. Now, is something wrong with your friend's eyes? No. These rapid movements, both the big and the small, what they're doing is they're keeping the image on the retina fresh. Totally unconsciously, her eyes are working to maintain a constantly changing image. Why do they bother? It's because any image that remains perfectly fixed on one position on the retina will become invisible. Here's how to prove this to yourself. If you wear contact lenses, take a marker and draw a small shape on the front of your contact, right in the middle. When you put the contact back in place on your eye, you'll see something there, but it won't last long. It rapidly fades to invisibility. Now, this phenomenon underscores the fundamental fact that brains care about change, just like with the Troxler effect, features that don't change yield little information about the world. All the important information comes from things in flux. Now, if you don't have contact lenses, don't worry, because you're already performing a similar experiment without knowing it. So you have blood vessels that sit on top of your retina at the back of your eye, and these blood vessels should be seen superimposed on top of everything you look at because they're smack in front of your photoreceptors. But these blood vessels are totally invisible to your perception. Just like the drawing on your contact lens, these blood vessels are fixed in position with respect to your retina. So no matter how much your eyes move, they can't refresh the image of these blood vessels. Even though the vessels interpose themselves between you and the world, they perceptually disappear. It's like a magic trick. Now you might have noticed a flash of these vessels when the eye doctor shines a pen light in your eyes. Boom, there they are. In this situation, the beam of light can cause the vessels to cast a shadow at an unusual angle and your visual system suddenly takes notice. Something unexpected has just occurred at the retina and that's the only time you witness this massive network that obstructs your view. If you haven't seen this before, pause this podcast, go into a dark room and shine a beam of light in your eye from an angle. You'll see the blood vessels appear in front of you. Just note that your visual system will adapt fairly quickly. So the trick is to keep moving the light to different angles to maintain the image. So this strategy of ignoring the unchanging keeps your brain poised to detect anything that moves or shifts or transforms. At the extreme, this is how reptile visual systems work. A reptile can't see you if you stand still because they only register change. They don't bother with position. And such a system is perfectly sufficient. Reptiles have been surviving and thriving for tens of millions of years. You probably remember the scene in Jurassic Park where they say, don't move, the dinosaurs can't see you if you don't move. Well, this is why. Reptiles ignore anything that does not change. So let's return to the waterfall illusion. Why doesn't your visual system shift so much that the waterfall is perceived as standing still? Well, first, there might be limits to the recalibration. It simply can't recalibrate enough to subtract off the massive motion of the falls. But I think there's another possibility, which is that you haven't watched the waterfall for long enough. And if you did, it would eventually recalibrate all the way. How long might that take? Two months of staring at a waterfall? Two years? In theory, if you were to watch for a long enough time, then the short-term changes in your visual system would eventually lead to longer-lasting changes, leading eventually to changes at the deepest levels of the system. So, ever-present background motion would become invisible to us. And this leads to a crazy speculation that I made in my book LiveWired. It's crazy, but logically sound. Are parts of the world invisible to us? That should be obvious. Imagine there was something like a cosmic rainfall that had existed your entire life, It would be completely invisible to you, because you've never seen otherwise, so your visual system would have set the downward motion as its zero point. If the cosmic rain suddenly stopped, it would seem as though the whole world were suddenly moving upward. We would believe that something had just appeared, ascending rain, even though the real rain had just ended. And this situation could happen in any sensory channel. Imagine the beep, beep, beep of a cosmic alarm clock with no snooze button all the time, all throughout the cosmos, beep, beep, beep. If it were totally regular, you wouldn't hear it because your brain would have adapted to it. If the cosmic alarm suddenly ceased, everyone would hear a great beep, 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 but we would have no idea that we were experiencing the after effect with the external sound totally inside our heads. Successful adaptation makes regularities invisible. So, we've been talking about these illusions as the results of adaptation, but there's actually another way to look at this. These illusions result from prediction. So, if you subtract away the downward motion of the waterfall or the rocking of the boat or the drawing on your contact lens, that is equivalent to predicting its continued existence. In other words, when brain circuitry adjusts, it's making a guess about what the world is likely to be in the next moment. It stops talking about news that is expected to continue. So, think again about your retinal blood vessels. They are perceptually invisible because your visual system predicts them away. It knows they are going to be there, so it ignores them. It's only if those expectations are violated, like when a light shines in from a strange angle, that your brain spends any energy on representing that data. Your brain doesn't want to pay the energy cost of spiking neurons So the goal is to reconfigure the network to waste as little power as possible. If a pattern streams in that's predictable or even partially guessable, the system saves energy by structuring itself around that input so as not to be surprised by it. If your brain is quieter, that means there are fewer violations of expectations. Things in the outside world are going approximately as forecast. In other words, an energy-conscious brain wants to predict away everything possible so it can save its energy for just representing the unexpected. Silence is golden. So although many neuroscientists think of activity in neurons as the representation of things in the world, it may turn out that spikes are the unpredicted energy expensive part. The representation of something totally expected would be nothing but a hush falling over the neuronal forest. The system makes adjustments only when it gets surprised. If your brain thinks that all bricks weigh the same amount and then you attempt to pick up a brick made of lead, the violation of your expectation causes cascades of changes to deal with this new turn of events. But in contrast, if everything is successfully predicted, there's no need to change anything. For these reasons, when you first look at the Troxler picture, you notice the blobs. And when you first put in the contact lens, you detect the drawn-on shape. But after a short time, your brain adjusts itself. It's no longer surprised. Let me give you another example of the brain predicting things away. So I talked in a previous episode about the neosensory wristband, which converts sounds into patterns of vibration on the skin and deaf people wear the wristband and with time they can start to hear the world through the signals that get to their brain via the skin if you're interested in learning more that was episode 12 but the point i want to make here is what happens when a hearing person first puts on the wristband they always react with surprise when they're feeling all the sounds of the world and they say whoa this thing is picking up on my own voice they're always startled by that because it seems like they shouldn't be registering their own speech. But of course, your ears pick up on your voice all the time. It's typically the loudest voice in your conversations because your own mouth is the closest one to your ears. But because you can perfectly predict your own vocalizations, you hardly hear your own voice. You don't notice it. Your brain is predicting it away. Or take this example. When people wear the wristband, they're struck by the volume of other predictable sounds that they normally pay no attention to because they're the ones who create the sounds like flushing the toilet or closing the door behind them or their own footsteps. It's not that your auditory system doesn't register these sounds, but instead it's that you actively predict them away. So you flush the toilet or close the door or walk, and these things don't sound particularly loud to you. But it becomes obvious when you're wearing the wristband, you can't believe how loud these events are because your brain has not yet learned to predict the signals coming up your arm. So your brain actively recalibrates because that allows it to burn less energy. But there's an even deeper principle at work here. In the darkness of your skull, your brain is striving to build an internal model of the outside world. When you walk around your house, you don't pay any attention to the environment because you already have a good model of it. In contrast, when you're driving in a foreign city, you're trying to find your way to a particular hotel, you're forced to look around at everything, the street signs, the store names, the building numbers, because you don't already have a good model of what to expect. So how do you build up a good internal model? What is the neural technology that allows you to zoom in on those data points that don't match your expectation while ignoring everything else that's already accounted for? We call this attention. You pay attention to the unexpected bang or the unforeseen brush on your skin or the surprising movement in your periphery. Attending allows you to put your high resolution sensors on the problem and figure out how to incorporate it into your model. Ah, that's just the lawnmower. Ah, that's the kitten. Ah, that's the housefly your model is now updated. In contrast, you don't pay any attention to the feeling of the shoe on your left foot because you already have an internal model of it, and that model is consistently predicting what you're receiving. At least until you get a pebble in your shoe, that draws your attention because suddenly the model calls for an update. The difference between predictions and outcomes is the key to understanding a strange property of learning, which is that if you're predicting something perfectly, your brain doesn't need to change further. So say you learn that the ding of your phone predicts that you just got a text message. Your brain will quickly learn the relationship between those two, in large part because of the relevance of text messages to your social life. Then let's say your phone gets a software update. And as a consequence, the arrival of the text message is now signaled by a ding plus a vibration. It turns out that your brain won't train up on the vibration. This is an effect known as blocking. Your brain already knows that the ding predicts the text, so it has no need to learn about something new. If your phone merely vibrates without the ding, your brain won't know the meaning of that cue. It has learned nothing about that. This phenomenon of blocking makes sense when we understand that changes in the brain happen only when there's a difference between what was expected and what actually happened. So having an internal model of the world allows us to make predictions and quickly detect when we're wrong, which tells us where to attend and how to update things. And this sort of system, by the way, is becoming interesting to engineers thinking about the future of machinery. Several companies are starting to work on devices that operate this way from tractors to airplanes. An internal model of the world allows a machine to make its best guesses about the events that are expected to unfold. And when events are consistent with the predictions of the machine's algorithm, nothing has to change. And it's only when the inputs go off script that the software needs to pay attention to update the machine's model. Okay, so now that we've talked about all the ways that your system adapts, it'll now be easy to understand how drugs modify nervous systems. When you consume a drug, that changes the number of receptors for that drug in the brain to such an extent that you can look at a brain after a person has died and determine his addictions by gauging his molecular changes. This is why people become desensitized or tolerant to a drug, the brain comes to predict the presence of the drug. It adapts its receptor expression so it can maintain a stable equilibrium when it receives the next hit. In a physical, literal way, the brain comes to expect the drug to be there. The biological details have calibrated themselves accordingly. And because the system now predicts a certain amount to be present, more of the drug is needed to achieve the original high. This recalibration, that's the basis of the ugly symptoms of drug withdrawal. The more the brain is adapted to the drug, the harder the fall is when the drug is taken away. Withdrawal symptoms vary by drug, from sweating to shakes to depression, but what they all have in common is a powerful absence of something that was anticipated. I suggested in my book LiveWired that this understanding of neural predictions also gives us an understanding of heartbreak. And this is because the people that you love become part of you, not just metaphorically, but physically. You absorb people into your internal model of the world. Your brain refashions itself around the expectation of their presence. So after the breakup with a lover or the death of a friend or the loss of a parent, the sudden absence represents a major departure from homeostasis. As Khalil Gibran put it in The Prophet, quote, and ever has it been that love knows not its own depth until the hour of separation. In this way, your brain becomes like a negative image of everyone you've ever come in contact with, your lovers, your friends, your parents, they fill in their expected shapes. And just like feeling the waves after you've departed the boat, or craving the drug when it's not there, so your brain calls for the people in your life to be there. And when someone moves away or rejects you or dies, your brain struggles with its thwarted expectations. Slowly through time, it has to readjust to a world without that person. Now, I want to cover one more thing in today's episode, which is how your brain knows how to adjust. And I suggested in LiveWire that there's a very simple but surprising strategy underlying all this. And to understand this, consider something like phototropism in plants. This is where plants capture maximum light by constantly adjusting their position. So if you watch a plant growing in fast motion you'll see that it doesn't grow straight towards the light source. Instead, it overshoots its trajectory by a little bit, then it undershoots by a bit, and then back and forth. It's not a pre-planned mission. It's a spastic dance with constant correction. And by the way, you find something similar in the strategy that bacteria use to find food. When they're searching for the center of a food source, like a bit of sugar that's fallen on the kitchen counter... They make their way to the sugar by employing three elegantly simple rules. One, randomly select a direction and move in a straight line. Two, if things are getting better, keep going. Three, if things are getting worse, randomly change directions by tumbling. In other words, the strategy is to lock down the approach when conditions are improving and dump it when it's not working. By this simple policy, a bacterium can quickly and efficiently work its way to the densest point of the food source. So I've proposed that there's a similar principle at work in the brain. Instead of working its way towards maximizing sunlight or food, it works towards maximizing information. And I call this strategy infotropism. The hypothesis suggests that neural circuitry constantly shifts to maximize the amount of information it can extract from the world. So consider what we've heard in some of the previous episodes. We saw the way the brain comes to figure out its sensory organs, like its eyes and ears and nose and fingertips. When you're a baby, you don't know what those data streams mean, and your brain figures it out with experience. And we saw the way a brain comes to learn how to control a body, no matter if that body possesses fins or legs or robotic arms. Whatever the case the brain fine-tunes its circuitry to maximize data it streams from the world. So this fine-tuning is helped along by rewards, which cause broadcasts throughout the circuitry to announce that something worked. In this way, with a minimum of pre-programming, the system works out how to optimize its interaction with the world. Or another example is that your brain will adjust to whatever language you're exposed to as a baby, such that you can hear those sounds, but you lose the ability to distinguish other sounds and other languages. This is all infotropism at work. Babies' brains adjust to maximize the data that matters around them. On a longer timescale, when a person goes blind, other senses take over the visual cortex, And in an upcoming episode, we'll learn how neurons actually pull this off. But for now, note that we can interpret this takeover as infotropism. The brain is maximizing its resources so that it can best interpret whatever data flows in. And just think about the McCulloch effect with the horizontal and vertical colored lines. Your visual system works to separate the dimensions of color and orientation because it's trying to maximize information from the world. And so accordingly, it doesn't want to mix together these separable measures. So although the effect is typically viewed as simply a fun visual illusion, the work happens under the hood for a deeper reason. If something were causing a Tinge to appear on lines like some strange overhead lighting or something wrong with your optics, your brain would reorganize itself to take care of this, canceling out this weird relationship. And by doing so, it would maximize your capacity to extract information about colors and orientations separately. By separating two dimensions that statistically should be unyoked, your brain can best gather information from the world. Here's a cool example of infotropism at the level of neurons. The retina in your eye, the set of photoreceptors at the back of your eye, captures the light of the world and tells the brain what it's seeing out there. But it reads the world differently in the day and in the night. So in bright daylight, there are plenty of photons to capture. And so each photoreceptor just takes care of its own tiny dot of the scene. And this gives nice and high resolution. But at night, it's a different story. There are few photons to be captured. And so now the important job of the retina is to detect that something was there, even if it can't tell that with high resolution. So at night, the photoreceptors do their work very differently. Essentially, they join forces with their neighbors. They change the details of their internal molecular cascades so they can link arms with one another. Now, they're operating as a team. They can detect much lower levels of light. They can detect fewer photons out there. So what we have here is this beautiful and sophisticated strategy that has the retina operate differently as the light levels go up or down. When it's bright out, the system achieves high spatial resolution. And when it's dark, photoreceptors pool together to have a better chance to catch photons, which results in vision that's more sensitive to dim light, but blurrier in resolution. You've surely noticed this at nighttime when you can't quite make out what something is out there, whereas it would be easy in the daytime. So the point here is that your eyes, your retinas, put enormous work into shifting themselves around to maximize information that matters. Whether the photons are plentiful or they're rare, the retina optimizes itself to get useful data. In the day, it captures the most detail so that it can spot the rabbit at the distance. In dim light, it shifts to higher sensitivity to capture whatever's out there with lower detail, capturing the shadowy essence of the jaguar lurking in the gloom. Mother Nature figured out not only how to build an eye, but also how to adjust its circuitry on the fly so it can operate well in different contexts all to make the best use of what's available. It is infotropic. Just like the plant seeks light, the retina seeks data. And more generally, as we've seen in this episode, the brain is always seeking information. It constantly adjusts its circuitry to maximize the data it can draw from the world. So if you're staring at a waterfall, it discounts the downward motion so it can be sensitive to other things. If you put on yellow sunglasses, your brain discounts that shift in color so that it can be more sensitive to other information. And you can detect this shift when you take off the sunglasses and you have a big blue color after effect. So to wrap up, this episode plugs into the big picture we've been talking about in many episodes and we'll see in many more, which is that the brain is locked in silence and darkness and its job is to build an internal model of the outside world. And what we're seeing a little more clearly now is that its internal model is really there to make predictions. If the world proceeds as expected, the brain saves energy. So when the world changes let's say becoming a place with lots of downward motion or yellow light or something, the brain adjusts to match it so that it can be maximally positioned to gather new information that's unexpected. So these after-effect illusions seem funny and maybe trivial, but they're actually a powerful way for us to reveal this constant adaptation that your brain is doing. Over the course of many episodes coming up, we're going to see how fundamentally the brain is a prediction machine. And that is the driving engine behind its constant self-reconfiguration. By modeling the state of the world, the brain reshapes itself to have good expectations and therefore to be maximally sensitive to the unexpected. Go to eagleman.com slash podcast for more information and to find further reading. Send me an email at podcast at eagleman.com with questions or discussions, and I'll be making an episode soon in which I address those. Until next time, I'm David Eagleman, and this is Inner Cosmos.